Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents and may not be suitable for children. If you struggle with addiction, feel depressed or have suicidal thoughts and you need support, please contact your local crisis centre or reach out to a friend to ask for help. On the evening of August the 8th, 1969, Actress Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, would go to dinner at El Coyote with her three friends, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Frakowski. After returning to Tate's home on Cielo Drive, four cult members of the Charles Manson family would arrive at her estate just after midnight. Concerned the gate might have a security alarm, Tex Watson would cut the telephone lines before climbing a brushy embankment to enter the estate grounds. The Manson gang would find an open window in the main house and Tex cut the screen out and climbed through the window. Once inside, he quietly unlocked the front door and let the other two girls in. What would happen next to the four unsuspecting friends would be a chaotic scene straight out of a horror movie. After tying them up, Tex would tell them, you are all going to die. The 1960s, Summer of Love, would come to an abrupt and bloody end on the morning of August the 9th when Charles Manson's family murdered Sharon Tate and her three friends. Join us on a supernatural journey as we explore the glamorous life of Hollywood actress Sharon Tate. We investigate the story behind her chilling death, explore the mystical facts and tell the haunting tale of the Manson cult. This is Death by Misadventure. Sharon Tate was born on January 24, 1943, under the zodiac sign of Aquarius, in Dallas, Texas. She was the oldest of three girls, and her father, Colonel Paul Tate, was a United States Army officer, and her mother, a housewife, was named Doris. She was an adorable child, and at six months old, Sharon won her first beauty pageant, the Miss Tiny Tot of Dallas. It was her first taste at stardom, but her parents had no idea she would one day grow up to be a movie star. Doris and Paul were very young when Sharon was born, and since her father was away from home frequently due to military duty, Doris's life revolved around little Sharon for a decade until her other two daughters were born. At the age of nine, her parents welcomed Deborah in 1952 and later Patricia in 1957. Though her family described Sharon as shy and noted her difficulty creating or maintaining friendships, She was a different young lady when she went on stage. Sharon went on to be crowned Miss Richland 1959 and the queen of the Tri-City Autorama. The same year, her father was transferred to northern Italy and Sharon was enrolled in high school. She adapted quickly and was a model student. She played on the basketball team, was a cheerleader, served on student council, starred as Juliet in the school's rendition of Romeo and Juliet, and she was elected her homecoming and senior prom queen. It was during her senior year in high school that Sharon received her first acting break. While in Italy, she and her friends discovered that a movie named Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man was filming on location nearby. It starred Richard Beamer, Paul Newman, and Susan Strasberg, and the girls won parts as extras on the movie. The bit part also led to a new romance for Sharon, While on set, she caught the attention of actor Richard Beamer. He was smitten, and they quickly became a couple and dated throughout the shoot. It was a turning point for the young budding actress, and Beamer encouraged her to pursue a career in Hollywood. After she finished filming Adventure of a Young Man, Sharon went on to work as an extra in several more films, and even went to Hollywood to pursue an acting career. Her protective mother, Doris, worried about Sharon on a daily basis. She had read Hollywood horror stories about the casting couch and feared her daughter would be taken advantage of. 
Soon, Sharon's dreams would be sidelined when her mother Doris had a nervous breakdown. Guilt-stricken, she returned to Italy to take care of her mother and ease her worries. Fortunately for Sharon, in 1962, the family would return stateside to San Pedro, California, when she was 19 years old. When she returned to Los Angeles, her boyfriend, Richard Beamer, introduced her to his agent, and the young actress would get another shot at stardom. Her big break came after an audition for Petticoat Junction. She was discovered by Filmway's producer, Martin Ransohoff, who said to her, Baby, we're going to make you a star. At the age of 20, Sharon signed a seven-year contract with MGM and was groomed to be a movie star. For three years, she was on a rigorous circuit of acting, voice, singing, and bodybuilding classes. I've had no personal life, Sharon said in an interview in 1966, before she was cast in her first major role. Sharon started locking down small parts in 1960s hits like The Beverly Hillbillies and Mr. Ed. However, her manager at the time was quite controlling and would often refuse to give her bigger roles in films, including big-name projects like The Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen, because he felt she was too shy and couldn't carry the role. During this time, Sharon met the French actor Philippe Fouquet and began a relationship with him in 1963. They became engaged, but their relationship was volatile, and they frequently argued. Career pressures drove them apart, and they broke up the following year in 1964. Soon thereafter, Sharon met Jay Sebring, a former sailor who was now a leading hairstylist in Hollywood. The two started dating, and Jay fell madly in love with her and eventually proposed marriage. Sharon declined because she wanted to focus on her career, and the two decided to remain close friends. After paying her dues for three years, In 1965, Martin finally cast Sharon in the lead role in the occult thriller Eye of the Devil. Sharon had waited a long time to be cast in her first breakout role, and she was excited to have the starring role as a temptress witch. She even traveled to London to do research and met with a Wiccan high priest and priestess, Alex and Maxine Sanders, to prepare for her part. Later in her autobiography, Firechild, Maxine Sanders would later claim that Sharon was fascinated by Wicca's rituals and became a follower. Next, Sharon was cast in the role of Jennifer North in The Valley of the Dolls. The film, based on the book written by Jacqueline Suzanne, takes place in New York City. The story spans 20 years and focuses on the lives of three women who become roommates and friends. Together, they find fame, get married, and take lovers— and turn to drugs to cope with problems they encounter along the way. The role was perfect for Sharon Tate. The character Jennifer North was based on Marilyn Monroe and Carol Landis, both who died at a young age, and many believe their beauty and sex appeal turned out to be more of a curse than a blessing. Tate told Look magazine in 1967 that when people look at her, all they see is a sexy thing. People are very critical on me. It makes me tense. Even when I lay down, I'm tense. I've got an enormous imagination. I imagine all kinds of things, like that I'm all washed up, I'm finished. I think sometimes that people don't want me around. I don't like being alone, though. When I'm alone, my imagination gets all creepy. In 1967, Playboy published an article claiming that 1967 was the year that Sharon Tate happens. Although Valley of the Dolls was released to harsh reviews, it still managed to do well at the box office, and Sharon would be nominated for a Golden Globe as promising new actress in a film. However, her life would take a deadly turn when she's introduced to dashing young director Roman Polanski. karmic tales, there's usually one person who plays matchmaker in these complicated love affairs. In this case, Martin Ransohoff 
was responsible for introducing Sharon Tate to her future husband, Roman Polanski. By coincidence, the two happened to live around the corner from each other in London. They met over dinner arranged by the film producer, who wanted to help Sharon land a role in his upcoming film, The Fearless Vampire Killers. However, the first two dates were difficult, to say the least. Polanski even refused to speak to Sharon during their first dinner. However, after the second meeting, he took her back to his apartment for a nightcap to get to know her better. Having left Sharon alone for several minutes, Polanski reappeared wearing a Frankenstein's monster mask. Frightened, she let out a blood-curdling scream, and that reaction convinced him he should cast her as the lead in his new horror comedy, The Fearless Vampire Killers, and to become his new lover. Sharon, an Aquarius, was a mystical creature. Most men found her enchanting, exciting, and unpredictable. She was a free thinker, and her Venus in Aquarius meant she was attracted to men who would stimulate her intellectually, and most likely she found Polanski's behavior interesting. With that said, she had a mysterious aura about her, and at first people would find her aloof. However, men were mesmerized by her beauty, but in the eyes of her friends, she had a quiet charm about her, and they found her to be sweet and kind. For the Polish playboy, his first impression of Sharon was that she was just another Hollywood actress with all beauty and no brains. Polanski, a proud Leo, was the polar opposite of Sharon, and at first, he wasn't interested. But he had a change of heart when they met the second time, and they emotionally connected on a deeper level. His moon and cancer made the director moody and sensitive, and he had to feel a connection first with Sharon before he decided to consider her for a role in his film. However, as a lover, he would find a tragic romance that would soon scar his life forever. People magazine would write, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski quickly fell in love and got married on January 20th, 1968 in London. The honeymoon was short-lived, and soon their marriage was riddled with wild rumors, ranging from infidelity to forced threesomes. Sharon was deeply in love with her husband, who was nine years her senior, but also extremely intimidated by him. She had a taste for dominant men, and it seemed like Polanski fit the bill completely. He had power both on the professional and personal front that Sharon was deeply attracted to, but it soon introduced her to his kinky sexual tendencies that included drugs, orgies, and even home sex videos that he shared with his friends. In the book, Sharon Tate, A Life, one of her friends, Joanna, said Polanski had a high level of control over his wife. He told her how to dress, what makeup he liked, what he didn't like, and he preferred her to not wear makeup at all. Whether or not the rumors are true, Sharon in an interview was quoted as saying, We have a good arrangement. Roman lies to me, and I pretend to believe him. In February of 1969, Polanski and his wife would move into a 1942 French country-style home, located on three acres in Benedict Canyon at 10050 Silo Drive. They rented the home from Rudolf Altabelli, a music and film talent manager, whose former famous residents of the estate included Cary Grant and Diane Cannon, Henry Fonda, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and Samantha Egger. The last couple to live there before the Polanskis moved in were Candace Bergen and her boyfriend, music producer Terry Melker, the son of actress Doris Day. Sharon adored the 1942 home and dubbed it the Love House. She knew that this was the home she wanted to nest in and welcome her baby boy in August. However, little did she know, it would be a choice that would have deadly consequences. Sharon Tate, eight months pregnant, would pay one final visit to her family on July 20th, 1969. Together, they watched the moon landing and discussed the pending arrival of their new family member. Sharon was excited to be a mom. The night of the moon landing, the Virgo moon was conjunct in Pluto and set the tone for their final evening together. Dreams, visions, 
or psychic impressions are often extremely vivid and profound during this time period. And just a few weeks later, Sharon would make a fateful decision that would change the lives of her family forever. Three souls would escape the unexpected nightmare that awaited the beautiful actress and her friends on August 9, 1969. Sharon, who was born with the life path number six vibration, represents someone who radiates inner wisdom and is clairvoyant. They magnetically attract others to them and are genuinely loved by their friends and family. However, the sixth vibration can also be a double-edged sword and bring great sorrow with karmic debts to pay. This energy was intensified by the fact that her husband, Roman Polanski, also had the life path number six, and they lived in a home with a sixth vibration. Together, it equaled to the number 666, and is referred to as the number of the beast in the Bible. A few weeks later, on the afternoon of August 8, 1969, Sharon's two little sisters, Deborah and Patty, called to ask if they could have a sleepover at her home. Sharon, who was tired, politely declined and told the girls she had dinner plans with friends, but promised they could come visit soon. Later that evening, Sharon's good friend, Ava Roosevelt, was at her agent's home when she received a phone call from the actress, inviting her to dinner at El Coyote but she had to decline the offer. Ava had made plans to meet with a German producer for dinner and had booked a commercial shoot at Universal Studios the following morning. However, Sharon insisted her friend swing by her home after dinner around 10.30 p.m. for a drink, and Ava agreed. According to friends, Sharon was depressed that evening and in a funk. Her husband, Roman Polanski, was in London filming The Day of the Dolphin. So he had asked their close pals, Wojciech Fikowski and Folger's coffee heiress, Abigail Folger, to stay at his house with Sharon until he flew back to L.A. on August 12th. He didn't feel comfortable leaving his pregnant wife alone. To escape the baby blues, Sharon headed to El Coyote with her three friends, Jay Sebring and her two house guests, Abigail and Wojciech. After waiting 15 minutes in the bar, the four were seated and unknowingly would share their last meal together before leaving the restaurant around 9.45 p.m. as they headed back to Celio Drive. After arriving home around 10.30 p.m., Wojcik fell asleep on the couch. Abigail retired to her room to read a book, and Jay and Sharon were in her bedroom talking. At 11.45 p.m., Ava jumped in her car to head over to Sharon's home for a nightcap, when suddenly her 1955 Silver Dawn's gas gauge began to flicker. Ava, concerned her Rolls Royce might break down, she decided to return home. At the time, she had no idea her car troubles had just saved her from meeting a gruesome fate. Manson, who was uneducated but highly intelligent, had a phenomenal ability to gain control over other people and get them to do terrible things. He even convinced his followers that he was the second coming Christ and the devil, all wrapped up in the same person. However, revenge is what fueled Manson's sick mind the most. A wannabe rock star who had tried unsuccessfully to get a record deal from Melcher, and now he wanted a karmic debt to be paid by anyone who currently lived at the home. When the group arrived at the entrance to the property, Tex Watson, who had been to the house on at least one other occasion, climbed a telephone pole near the entrance gate and cut the phone line to the home. The group backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the estate, parked, and walked back up to the house. Thinking the gate might be electrified or equipped with an alarm, they climbed a brushy embankment to the right of the gate and entered the grounds. Linda Kasabian remained behind the wheel as a lookout. Just then, Headlights in a distance drove towards the three Manson followers. Tex ordered the women to hide in the bushes and stepped out into the driveway and ordered the approaching car to halt. 18-year-old student Stephen Parent had been visiting the property's caretaker, William Gerritsen, who lived in the guest house. As Tex leveled a 22 caliber revolver at Parent, 
The frightened teen begged for his life, claiming that he would not say anything. Tex lunged at Parent with a knife, giving him a defensive slash wound on the palm of his hand, then shot him four times in the chest and abdomen, killing him. After walking across the front lawn, the Manson gang found an open window in the main house, and Tex cut the screen out and climbed through it. Once inside, he quietly unlocked the front door and let Susan and Patricia in. Tex stormed into the living room, startling Wilczek, who was sleeping on the couch. Confused by the unexpected intruder, he asked who Tex was and what he was doing there, and he responded stating, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business, and kicked him in the head. The chaotic scene at the Benedict Canyon home was straight out of a horror film. You are all going to die, Tex told them after tying all of them up with a rope and forcing the other guests into the living room. Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring had nooses around their necks, and Tex slung the rope over the ceiling beams. When Jay protested the rough treatment of his pregnant friend, Tex shot and killed him. Abigail and Wojcik managed to free themselves and flee the house, but both were chased down the hill and killed by Tex and Patricia on the front lawn. Sharon, frightened, sat helplessly as she heard her two friends' cries for help as they were attacked by these deranged lunatics. Begging for her unborn son's life, she offered to be a hostage so the Manson followers could escape. Instead, she was stabbed to death by Susan Atkins as she cried out for her mother before dying. Linda Kasabian, who was still in the car, heard the horrifying sounds and ran up to the front door in effort to halt the massacre. She banged on the door telling the others someone was coming and they needed to leave. Tex, Susan, and Patricia ran out of the home, but stopped and wrote the word pig on the wall in blood. As they drove off, Kasabian took the weapons, wiped them clean, and dropped them in a ravine. What's even stranger is the fact that the police were never contacted by concerned neighbors. Next door, at 10070 Celio, Mr. and Mrs. Cott had already gone to bed, their dinner guests having left at about midnight, when Mrs. Cott heard, in close sequence, what sounded like three or four gunshots. They seemed to have come from the direction of the gate of 10050. Hearing nothing further, Mrs. Cott went to sleep. About three quarters of a mile directly down the road from 10050 Celio Drive, Tim Ireland was one of five counselors supervising an overnight campout for some 35 children at the Westlake School for Girls. The other counselors had gone to sleep, but Ireland had volunteered to stay up through the night. At approximately 12.40 a.m., he heard from what seemed a long distance away, a lone male voice screaming, Oh God, no, please don't. Oh God, no, don't, don't, don't. However, there was one lone security guard, Robert Bullington, who was parked in front of 2175 Summit Ridge Drive, with his window down, when he heard what sounded like three gunshots, spaced a few seconds apart. He contacted Eric Carlson, who was working the desk at patrol headquarters, who called the LAPD and passed on the report. The officer who took the call remarked, I hope we don't have a murder. We just had a woman screaming call in that area. But hours later, the police still had not patrolled the area to find out if any crime had been committed. In the book, Helter Skelter, it said, Sharon Tate's housekeeper, one of Fred Chapman, got off the bus at the intersection of Santa Monica and Canyon Drive on the morning of August 9th. Late for work, she saw a man she had once worked with, and he gave her a ride to the gate of Sharon Tate's house. When she opened the door just after 8 a.m., she knew instantly something was wrong. There appeared to be blood on the floor and on two towels in the entryway. She couldn't see the entire living room. A long couch cut off the area in front of the fireplace. But everywhere she could see, she saw the red splashes. The front door was slightly open. Looking out, she saw several pools of blood on the flagstone porch. And on the lawn, she saw a body. Screaming, she turned and ran through the house, 
leaving the same way she had come in and ran down the driveway. In doing so, she passed on the opposite side of the white rambler, seeing for the first time that there was a dead body inside the car too. Once outside the gate, she ran down the hill to the first house, 10070, ringing the bell and pounding on the door. When the cots didn't answer, she ran to the next house, 10090, banging on that door and screaming, murder, death, bodies, blood. Tate's neighbor, 15-year-old Jim Asin, was outside on Saturday morning, warming up the family car. He was a member of the Law Enforcement Unit 800 of the Boy Scouts of America, and he was waiting for his father to drive him to the West L.A. Division of the LAPD, where he was scheduled to work on the desk. By the time he got back to the porch, his parents were comforting a hysterical Mrs. Chapman, and they were trying to calm her down. His parents asked Jim to call the police and he noted the time was 8.33 a.m. While waiting for the police, Jim and his father walked to the gate of the Polanskis' home. They noticed several telephone wires were down, and they appeared to be cut. Returning back to their house, Jim called the police a second time, and some minutes later, a third. Finally, one hour later, the police arrived to the Benedict Canyon home to investigate a possible homicide. When the officers from the Robbery Homicide Division arrived at the scene, according to the police report, they found Stephen Parent's body slumped in the driver's seat of his Rambler. It appeared that he had been shot in the face, left arm, and chest. The next body found outside the home was that of Wojciech Fukowski, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, lay dead in the front yard. The police entered the main home and found Sharon Tate's lifeless body inside the living room and Jay Sebring was found approximately four feet away from her. Located behind the estate was a small guest house that was not part of the Polanski lease. It was used by the owner when he was in town, and a young caretaker named William Gerritsen lived there also. The police report noted that Roman and Sharon Polanski moved into the home on February 15, 1969. We found that date quite compelling because of its mystical significance and the date equaled to the number six vibration, the same life path number as Sharon and Roman and the street address 10050 Silo Drive. The 666 energy continued to be a dark force behind the gruesome murders. The police appeared to be very interested in the connection between Frakowski and Polanski. The report noted the two were close friends and that they were both from a small town in Poland, and Frykowski's father was responsible for financing Polanski's first film. Since that first film, Polanski had become quite successful in the movie industry and had felt deeply indebted to his friend. He invited Frykowski and his girlfriend Abigail Folger to share his home while he was in London working on a film and asked them to keep an eye on his pregnant wife, Sharon not knowing the deadly nightmare that awaited his friends and family. During April, May, June, and the first part of July, the police report stated that Frykowski and Folger had many wild parties. An open invitation policy existed at the house, and drug use was rampant. At the time of the initial investigation, they believed the murders might somehow be drug-related. What perplexed the police the most is how William Gerritsen, who was home the night of the murders, gave vague answers to questions about his observations of what happened that tragic evening. Suspicious, the police placed him under arrest and transported him to the station to be interrogated for murder. Gerritsen, at the police station, continued to provide vague answers. Cops weren't sure if he was too high to remember what happened or he was trying to hide his guilt. At some point, he was informed of his rights and told that he was under arrest for murder. The cops continued to ask about his activities the previous night. Gerritsen said that although he had remained up all night, writing letters and listening to records, he had neither heard nor seen anything. 
His highly unlikely alibi, his vague answers, and his confused identification of the bodies led the arresting officers to conclude that he was lying. Five murders, four of them probably occurring less than 100 feet away, and Gerritsen had heard nothing? It was the investigator's opinion that he was under the residual effects of some type of narcotic during the entire time he was in custody. It's possible, but not probable, they thought, that he had no real knowledge of the crime. However, due to lack of evidence, he was released from custody two days later. In the best-selling book, Helter Skelter, it stated the police summoned Roman Polanski's manager, William Tennant, to come to the Benedict Canyon home to identify the bodies. It was like he was being led through a nightmare as he was taken first to one body, then to the next. Shaken by what he had just seen, he ran outside and vomited. Upon leaving, reporters gathered by the gate. As Tennant pushed through the crowd, clutching his stomach and sobbing, The reporters hurled questions at him. Is Sharon dead? Were they murdered? Has anyone informed Roman Polanski? He ignored them, but they all could read that death was written on his face. LAPD notified Sharon Tate's family, Sebring's parents, and Abigail Folger's father, Peter. Her father was chairman of the board of Folger Coffee Company, who lived in Woodside, her mother, Inez Folger, in San Francisco. However, Abigail's mother wasn't home, but visiting friends, and her ex-husband contacted her to deliver the horrible news. Eerily, she had spoken to her daughter the night before at 10 p.m., just a few hours before her death. Abigail had made plans with her mom to fly to San Francisco the following morning to celebrate her 26th birthday. When Tennant finally arrived home, he had to make one of the most difficult calls of his life and tell Polanski that his pregnant wife was not only dead, but she had been murdered. Polanski and several associates were going over a scene in the script of the day of the dolphin when the telephone rang. Tennant told him there had been a disaster at his home, and Roman, confused, asked which house. He was then told the horrific news that his wife Sharon and his friends Wojciech, Abigail, and Jay were all dead. Polanski screamed and yelled it must be a mistake, but Tennant, sobbing, confirmed it was true. He had gone to the house himself and had identified the bodies. Roman, hysterical, started pounding the walls, then his head with his fists, as he repeatedly cried out, Did she know how much I loved her? Did she know how much I loved her? The news spread quickly, and with it many wild rumors. Rudy Altobelli, owner of the Benedict Canyon home and business manager for a number of showbiz personalities, was in Rome. One of his clients, a young actress, called and told him that Sharon and four others had been murdered in his house and that Gerritsen, the caretaker he had hired, had confessed to the murder, but it wasn't true. Upon hearing of the tragic deaths, Actor Steve McQueen, longtime friend of Jay Sebring, suggested that the hairstylist's home should be rid of narcotics to protect his family and business. Though McQueen did not himself participate in the house cleaning, by the time the LAPD got around to searching Sebring's residence, anything embarrassing had been removed. However, one person survived that horrific evening. In a fortunate twist of fate for Sharon's good friend, Ava Roosevelt, who would have been the Manson's family's sixth victim if it weren't for her car troubles. Roman, devastated by the loss of his wife and son, allowed funeral arrangements to be made by Sharon's family. However, he did choose a special name for his unborn child, Paul Richard Polanski, which was the combination of Sharon's father's first name and Roman's father's first name. Colonel Paul Tate would spend the night before the funeral sitting beside Sharon's casket to watch over his daughter one last time. He wanted to take one last look at her as she lay peacefully in her favorite Puccini dress Roman had picked out. 
and his grandson Paul, who was tucked safely under her arm. He then quietly said a prayer before saying his final goodbye to his oldest daughter. The memorial service was on August 13, 1969, and was attended by Hollywood elite, including Peter Seller, Kirk Douglas, James Coburn, and even Warren Beatty, who flew in from London to attend the funeral. Polanski sat in the front row of the church along with Sharon's parents and her sisters, Patricia and Deborah. Sharon's mom retained her composure until the Reverend Peter O'Reilly said, Goodbye, Sharon, and may the angels welcome you to heaven and the martyrs guide your way. At that point, she broke into sobs, and Polanski helped her walk out of the chapel. Afterward, Sharon and her baby boy were buried together at Holy Cross Cemetery. A few days later, Roman Polanski gave away all of his possessions, unable to bear any reminders of his life with Sharon that he called the happiest I ever was in my life. Polanski would later state in an interview that in the months following the murders, he suspected various friends and associates, and his paranoia subsided only when the killers were finally arrested. Who was Charles Manson? And what karmic fate did he share with his murder victims? And could any of the senseless killings been prevented? We believe Manson, who had several planets in Scorpio in his astrology chart, had a hypnotic hold over his followers. He intuitively knew how to pick out emotionally broken men and women and manipulate them into doing his evil deeds. CNN would report during his childhood, Manson's mother sold him for a pitcher of beer to a woman who wanted to have children. His uncle had to find the woman so he could get his nephew back. He later would take his stepfather, William Manson's last name. According to the California Parole Board, Manson had a history of manipulation, controlling behavior, and mental illnesses, which included schizophrenia and paranoid delusional behavior. In early 1968, Manson would meet Gary Hinman, a music teacher who introduced him to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. Manson had an intense charm and attracted a group of followers and misfits. Together, his family moved to the Spawn Ranch, just outside of Chatsworth, California. Later, Dennis Wilson would introduce Manson to record producer Terry Melcher. But after initially showing interest in Manson's music, Melcher declined to work with him further, and it set off an emotional time bomb that would soon go off. In July 1969, Manson had become more irrational and instructed Bobby Bosalil, accompanied by Mary Bruner and Susan Atkins, to kill his friend Gary Hinman because of a dispute over money and property. On August 10, 1969, one day after Sharon Tate's murders, Manson, displeased at the sloppiness of the crime scene, decided the followers should kill again, and they were on the hunt for new victims. After several hours, the group arrived at the home of supermarket executive Leno La Bianca and his wife Rosemary, and the couple were brutally murdered. In October 1969, officers raided Barker Ranch in a remote area south of Death Valley National Monument. 24 members of the Manson family were arrested, including Charles Manson and Susan Atkins, on charges of arson and grand theft. At the time, they had no idea they were responsible for Sharon Tate's murder. Atkins was housed at Dormitory 8000 in Los Angeles and became friends with another inmate, Virginia Graham. She bragged about the grisly murder of Sharon Tate and the other victims' futile cries for help. She expressed no remorse over the killings and seemed to enjoy reliving their final moments. She even told Graham they had a secret hit list of celebrities that the Manson family planned to kill in the future, including Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Tom Jones, Steve McQueen, and Frank Sinatra. About the same time, the L.A. Sheriff's detectives interviewed Al Springer, a member of the Gang Straight Satan's biker group that Manson had tried to recruit into the family, and he told the police that Manson told him about the killings just days after the murders. Based on the account of Atkins' jailhouse confession, 
and interviews conducted with Al Springer and various Manson family members, the LAPD were able to identify the five persons who participated in the actual Tate and LaBianca murders. Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, Linda Kasabian, and Charles Tex Watson. The trial began June 15, 1970. The prosecution's main witness was Linda Kasabian, who, along with Manson, Atkins, and Krenwinkel, had been charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. Since Kasabian, by all accounts, had not participated in the killings, she was granted immunity in exchange for testimony that detailed the night of the horrific crimes. After a seven-month trial, the jury would find all the defendants guilty of murder on January 25, 1971, and they would all receive the death penalty. However, in 1972, the death penalty would be abolished in California, and the sentences for the Manson family members were commuted to life in prison. In the end, it's a story that still baffles. Linda Deutsch, a journalist, would tell L.A. Times, She had covered the Manson case for the Associated Press and said Manson had a streak of pure evil. She noted it's as if the curse has not disappeared and it hangs over everyone who was ever involved with him. After the death of his family, Roman Polanski returned to Europe and eventually continued directing. He made Macbeth in 1971 in England and back in Hollywood, Chinatown in 1974, which was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. However, trouble continued to follow him like a ghost, and he could not escape the Manson's curse. In 1977, Polanski was arrested and charged with drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. He subsequently pled guilty to the lesser offense of unlawful sex with a minor. After spending 42 days undergoing psychiatric evaluation in prison in preparation for sentencing, Polanski, who had expected to be put on probation, fled to Paris after learning that the judge planned to imprison him. In Europe, Polanski continued to make films, including Tess in 1979, starring Nastasia Kinski. It won Francis Cesar Awards for Best Picture and Best Director, and received three Oscars. He later produced and directed The Pianist, a drama about a Jewish-Polish musician escaping Nazi persecution. The film won three Academy Awards, including Best Director, along with numerous international awards. Polanski tried to explain his anguish after the murder of his wife and unborn son in his 1984 autobiography, Roman by Polanski, saying, since Sharon's death, and despite appearances to the contrary, my enjoyment of life has been incomplete. In moments of unbearable personal tragedy, some people find solace in religion. In my case, the opposite happened. Any religious faith I had was shattered by Sharon's murder. It reinforced my faith in the absurd. In July 2005, Polanski successfully sued Vanity Fair magazine for libel, after it alleged that he tried to seduce a woman on the way to his wife's funeral. Among the witnesses who testified on his behalf were Deborah Tate and Mia Farrow. Describing Polanski immediately after Sharon's death, Farrow testified, Of this I can be sure, of his frame of mind when we were there, of what he talked about, of his utter sense of loss, of despair and bewilderment and shock and love, a love that he had lost. At the conclusion of the case, Polinsky read a statement saying in part, The memory of my late wife Sharon Tate was at the forefront of my mind in bringing this action. However, Polanski has subsequently been accused of sexual assault by multiple other women and was expelled from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts in 2018. The mansion on 10050 Silo Drive, where Sharon Tate died, was torn down in 1994, and a new home was built by David Omen. Five years later, Omen's father purchased a nearby plot for $40,000, and together they built a house on it. 
He would tell LA Weekly in an interview that during construction, a worker told Omen he heard voices and footsteps coming from the top floor and had a spooky feeling he wasn't alone. However, on further inspection, he saw that nobody was there. Other co-workers heard footsteps and voices and also felt a cold breeze on the back of their necks. Then, in July 2004, Omen woke up from a deep sleep at 2 a.m. to find a full-body apparition at the bottom of his bed, pointing towards the driveway, which leads to the Manson murder site. The ghost never spoke, but gestured towards the driveway three times and then just disappeared. Fascinated and curious, he went to the LAPD to see if items from the murder had been left on the once-vacant land that held his house. If a bloody piece of clothing or a knife carrying the victim's DNA had been on this property, that might somehow serve as a connection, he thought. That's when he saw a photo of Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate's close friend and hairdresser, also brutally murdered on that horrible night. Sebring bore an eerie resemblance to the figure he had seen at his bedside. Paranormal activity at the house became something of an obsession for Oman. In the last decade, he's allowed access to dozens of paranormal investigative teams who've brought instruments to measure electromagnetic activity in the air, which is thought to be a sign of the spirit world. Oman says the very first person to document the paranormal activities was world-renowned parapsychologist Barry Taff, who said in over 4,000 cases he's investigated, this house had the highest consistent EMF readings he'd seen. He called it the Mount Everest of haunted houses and the Disneyland for the dead. However, after the actress was brutally killed by the Charles Manson followers, Sharon Tate became the face of victims' rights, and her family became her voice. A decade after her murder, the actress's mother, Doris Tate, in response to the growing cult status of the killers and the possibility of them being granted parole, organized a public campaign that resulted in amendments to the California criminal law. She helped get the Victim Rights Bill, which allowed for victim impact statements passed in California in 1982. All 50 states now allow victims to speak either written or orally at certain phases of the legal process, according to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Tate's mother went on to say that the law would help transform Sharon's legacy from murder victim to a symbol of victims' rights. In 1992, Doris was one of several volunteer workers recognized by President George H.W. Bush the ceremony during which Doris and her family were honored by the president for their work in promoting victims' rights marked her final public appearance. She died later that year at the age of 68. On June 3, 2000, sadly, Patricia Tate would lose her battle with breast cancer and was buried next to her sister Sharon and her mother. In 2005, Paul Tate died of congestive heart failure at the age of 82. To this day, Deborah Tate continues to appear at the parole hearings of the Manson cult members on behalf of her family. In 2014, she released the book, Sharon Tate, Recollection, to celebrate the memory of her sister. In 2017, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and lives with her family in Southern California. The murders committed by the Manson family have been described by social commentators as one of the defining moments of the 1960s. Joan Didion wrote, Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9, 1969, at the exact moment when word of the murders traveled like brush fire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. Just before her death, Sharon Tate would state in an interview, I think something more powerful than we are decides our fate for us, and my whole life has been decided by fate. Even her husband, Roman Polanski, had a sense of foreboding the last time he saw his pregnant wife in July 1969. He would later note in his autobiography he had a grotesque thought when he kissed her goodbye. 
a voice saying, you will never see her again. Sadly, he was right, and just a few weeks later she was dead. All while his film, Rosemary's Baby, still lingered in the theatres. Regardless if you believe in fate or not, everyone would agree what happened to the beautiful young actress that night and the four others who died was beyond tragic. On August the 9th, 2019, will mark the 50-year anniversary of Sharon Tate's murder. A haunting reminder that the name Manson has become a metaphor for evil. However, for her family and friends, her spirit lives on in their hearts and minds and she will continue to be remembered for her glowing presence and beautiful soul. Death by Misadventure was produced by Cosmic Media and written by me, J.C. Nova. Our supernatural team of co-hosts includes the talented Eduardo Fahey in London, Tom Dre, our master numerologist and paranormal investigator in L.A., Paul Robinson, magi and musician in Marin, and myself, I'm a psychic astrologer and paranormal investigator in Los Angeles and San Francisco. This episode was recorded at Robin Sound Studios in Marin, California, and also at Union Recording Studio in West Hollywood, California. Kudos to sound engineers Paul Robinson and Noah Shanklin. A special thanks to audio producer Christopher Lang in Tucson, who brings each episode to life, and Paulina from Upper Planet in London. She's responsible for the super cool design of our official website. She's also the designer for one of our favorite true crime podcasts, Case File. Please like and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash death by misadventure podcast. Each episode is available for download direct via our website at deathbymisadventure.co.uk and also at iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Last but not least, our podcast is hosted by Libsyn. I'm JC Nova, and this has been Death by Misadventure. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.